The Og Blog Podcast is a one-man weekly podcast on the topics of peanuts and books of the works of Charles M. Schultz, and that's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, oh no, I'm not comparing myself to people who actually do work, heaven forbid, but I'm comparing myself to my fellow podcasters. Most of the weekly ones that I listen to are either slick professional productions with a team of people to gather stories, to edit, to do all that stuff, or they're much more stream of consciousness, just a couple people talking in a rather free-form style. Or they have some driving topic that makes it obvious what each week's episode is going to be about. Like The West Wing Weekly, for example. Uh, there's a podcast that's all about the TV show The West Wing, with an established podcaster and one of the series' stars discussing, on each episode of the podcast, another episode of the show, in order. They often have guests related to the show on. One thing that they never have to worry about is what to do the next episode about. The next episode of the podcast is about the next episode of The West Wing, and when they run out of episodes of The West Wing to talk about, the series is done. They do well with it. The episodes regularly run longer than the episodes of The West Wing that they're talking about. Now, that's not an advantage I have. Sure, I'm going to talk about something relevant to Peanuts, but coming up with a topic each week can be tough. And with 60 episodes in the can, I've run through a lot of the options that seemed obvious to me. And more than once, I started down on the thought of a good topic, only to recall that I'd I'd already done that topic half a year before. I don't have that West Wing Weekly advantage, the ability to just get the next thing and handle it in order. I mean, do you realize how ridiculous this show would be if I just did an episode every week about a peanut strip, going through them all in order? Sure, at one a week, I'd have topics for over 300 years, but can one really get a full podcast out of a strip? I don't think I'd want to do that week after week for 300 years, even if that were an option, which it may be. I don't plan to die. We shall see if the universe cooperates with that strategy, but no, I would not want to do that week after week. But maybe. Maybe just this once. So here goes. Today's episode is a look at the first peanut strip. Now, the first peanut strip is not the first one drawn, even if you ignore little folks which to some extent I do, at least in terms of it being Peanuts. It's not. It's neither the title nor the characters. There are, of course, parallels in the content. It is Charles Schultz doing cartoons about little kids, but it's not these cartoons, not these little kids. No, when I'm talking about the first peanut strips drawn, I'm talking about the versions that Schultz drew of it as a three-panel strip rather than a four-panel one. Some of the originals of these are still around. Pictures appear from time to time. Some of the gags were reworked into early four-panel strips. Some were not. But the first peanut strip that the public actually saw, and which you can see if you follow links on the blog entry for this episode, you may want to do that to follow along with this podcast. That first strip arrived in a small number of newspapers on October 2nd, 1950. And I bet that more than a few of you out there in listener land can describe it easily off the top of your head. Shermie and Patty are sitting on a stoop as Charlie Brown walks by, and Shermie says, Well, here comes old Charlie Brown. Good old Charlie Brown. Yes, sir. Good old Charlie Brown. How I hate him. And described like that, this seems pretty straightforward. But there's a lot going on there. This is, after all, the introduction to Peanuts. The introduction to a half-century-long work. Although I doubt that Schultz was thinking in terms of it being a a half-century-long work at the time. Not that it was impossible at that point. The Cats and Jammer Kids, a strip which had started in 1897, was still running, already longer running than Peanuts would ever be as an original strip. But a 50-year run is just not what one plans. But he knew it was an introduction to something, even if little of what it introduced would remain with the strip for the full run. After all, there are three characters here, two of whom would stop regularly appearing in the strip well before the end. And the third is in his very nascent form, 
to the degree that if someone who read the strip in the 1960s were to look at this first one without dialogue, they may not even recognize Charlie Brown. His head is more oblong than circular. His trademark zigzag shirt is not yet in evidence. But you go with the dialogue, and there's his name. Full name, first and last. Not once, but three times. He's only in half the panels of the strip, but we get his name more times than we get him. And we get, really, no information about him from that dialogue. Yes, Shermie is talking about him the whole time, but who we're really learning about is Shermie, his ability to hold contradictory views on a single topic. The upbeat, positive view, the one he probably thinks he's supposed to present to the world. Whatever the opposite of cynical is. Pollyanna, I suppose, is a very Pollyannish way to describe Charlie Brown. And then he lets loose with the darkness inside, and he does it in such a way that we don't assume that there's even a reason for it. How I hate him is an emotional reaction, not a logical one. Not even telling us in some vague term that uh, Charlie Brown is a horrible person. Shermie is speaking of the hate as something that's inside himself. And yet, even though we learn much more about Shermie than about Charlie Brown in this trip, as an introduction, it very much lets us know that Charlie Brown is the important character, in large part because of how little of him we see beyond the name. And if that sounds weird, well, pay attention to the start of any movie. I pay a lot of attention at the start of movies because, well, I'm serious about my popcorn. To me, watching most movies is a constant series of my hand getting from my large popcorn bag or bucket. Oh, how I miss the prevalence of those big, round, cardboard popcorn buckets. I recognize that they were using up more environmental resources, but they just felt right. Anyway, going from that bucket to my face, inserting a piece or two of popcorn into my face, returning for the cycle. I usually finish off that large popcorn before the film is quite over. So in order to prevent myself from being left with too much post-popcorn movie viewing, I have a rule. I do not start eating the popcorn until not only the movie has begun, but until we hear dialogue and see the lips moving of the person who is issuing that dialogue while we hear it. Now, that may sound like something that happens immediately, but it rarely is. I'm very aware of this because I'm waiting to eat that popcorn. And the film often starts with the main character there coming on the scene, but we're not looking straight at them. We're, we see them walking along. We see their feet on the sidewalk. We may hear what they say, but we're seeing other people reacting to them. The character's world is being introduced to us, and their place in the world is being introduced to us, and only after we get all that do we get the character themselves in a whole view. And that's what's going on here. While we do admittedly see the full figure of Charlie Brown, we are being introduced to him first not by what he says and does, but by what the world is he inhabits and how people react to him. We don't know these people's names. Neither Shermie nor Patty's names are mentioned in this strip. Shermie's there to show his reaction to Charlie Brown and to show us a world that can be so contradictory and arbitrary. And Patty is there, well, to give Shermie someone to talk to an excuse for the dialogue. She says nothing, and her facial expression is blank throughout, allowing the focus to remain on Shermie. And yet, as much as that looks like an introduction to Charlie Brown as the central figure of the strip, the next month of the strip suggests otherwise. He does not appear in most of the first month's strips. He appears less often than Patty does in the earliest days. He's given just one dialogue balloon per week for the first three weeks, and one of them is just a question mark. But his name is mentioned again in another strip in the third week, again mentioned multiple times, and a week before any other character's name is mentioned at all. 
Patty's name appears in week four, but Charlie Brown's name still gets mentioned more than any other character, than all the other characters combined. Heck, poor Shermie doesn't even get to hear his own name until December 18th, two and a half months into the strip. Perhaps... Perhaps that's really why Charlie Brown ended up being the central character of the strip. Perhaps Schultz just liked characters saying his full name so much that he had to be in that first strip. We're also given a sense of the physical world, perhaps less by what we see than what we don't. There are no buildings visible. This is a suburban environment rather than an urban one. A building is implied. Patty and Shermie are sitting on what appears to be a couple of steps at the start of a walkway leading up to a presumed home behind them. The rest of the physical world is so sparsely delineated that it's hard to define with certainty just what is around them. I think that Charlie Brown is crossing a street in the first panel, and that the house is on a corner, with a sidewalk going right up to the road rather than the usual suburban strip of green between the sidewalk and the curb. Well, that's pure interpretation. It's just a few loose lines. Now, Charlie Brown passes by Shermie and Patty without him reacting to them at all, without a visible nod or a hi. But to me, that's more just Schultz trying to frame the characters together, still finding a way to make his layouts work, uh, to depict Charlie Brown in a way that Shermie could see him to comment on him and then get him off the panel, than it is any real attempt to say anything about Charlie Brown and how he reacts to the world. Now, Charlie Brown moves swiftly through the scene. He goes from distant to past the speakers in a couple of panels and in a few lines of dialogue. Is he running? No, no, I tell you, he's flying. He is in the exact same pose in both panels, closer to us in the second one, but in both, it's his left arm and right leg that are forward. Positions exactly match. Sure, you're saying, that's not flying, he's actually moving. Schultz's camera just caught him in the same part of his walk cycle twice, and yes, that's a point. But look at his shadow. It's midday, apparently. The shadow is small and below him. But the important part is that he has no contact with it. If his feet were on the ground, they would touch the shadow. But no, he is several inches above the ground at all times. No airplane, no jetpack, no doghouse involved. Charlie Brown is apparently capable of simple human hover flight. He's a simple, smiling figure, blessed with hover ability and otherwise with no visible offensiveness. Perhaps Shermie is just jealous of his ability to hover. That would not be just, of course, but that gets to the point of this particular strip, that the world being depicted is not a just world. Some of us get to hover, and others blame us for it, even though it's not our fault. Now, Patty, as I mentioned, does little in the first strip. She says nothing, and her face is largely blank, but Schultz is still being attentive with her. Look at the third panel. See how her hand has moved out of her lap and onto the step as she has turned to follow Charlie Brown's progress, hovering away from them. It's a small thing, but it's right. Now, she's wearing a dress with a pattern of crisscross diagonal lines, which becomes her standard outfit. Now, if Schultz were a realistic artist, this could be the detail that would drive him nuts, as he would have to separately conform the pattern to the arms, the skirt, and the varying way that they flow in a given image. But he's not, and he draws the same straight lines across every part of the dress, and they work just fine. Believe me, many an artist has been driven nuts by all the web patterns on Spider-Man's costume. Most comic artists would rather draw a basically naked costume of a silver surfer than the intricate outfit of a jack of hearts. A Marvel Comics superhero whose costume had all the little fiddly details of, of the playing card image. But then they don't usually have the option of just faking the details in superhero comic books. Humor strip like Peanuts with his open style, you can get away with that.
There's always so much riding on the first trip. You never get a second chance to make a first impression, as the saying goes. I'm sure that Schultz spent a lot of time trying to get that trip just as he wanted. That's the advantage of the first few strips. You have time to get them right, to figure out what you're doing. Once the strip is solicited to papers and starts running, you better keep averaging one strip per day, or your series is going to end up having some blank days, and that is not liked out there in comic strip land. But even with that extra time, there were so many things that Schultz learned in the years to come by doing that strip day after day. So many things that he could now easily achieve, but still in that first strip, there was so much that he could and did achieve in terms of setting up the nature of the world that he would spend the next half century in. And that's about all the juice that I can squeeze out of those four panels. Now, if you have comments, suggestions, or questions... Oh, I really could use a mailbag episode right about now, so get them in. Maybe I'll read them on the air. Uh, mailbag episodes are fairly easy to put together for me. Anyway, address all correspondence to questions at aug.com. That's A-A-U-G-H dot com. And do stop by the blog at blog.aug.com. Rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please. I know that's how most of you are listening to it, but we still don't have enough ratings for Apple to show an average to folks. Now, I'm finally starting to track traffic for this podcast. I haven't done so up until now, but I'm about to find out how many people listen to this thing. That's kind of scary. I know there's at least some of you out there that I've not been talking to no one. I hope there's a reasonable number of you. Four or five million to be fine. I'm going to keep on doing this for at least a while, so keep on listening. And until next time, may you drift through the world so lightly that your feet never touch your shadow. May your popcorn always last to the end of the movie, even that after the credits scene. And may all your griefs be good ones.